The Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, had a very famous chassid. His name was Reb Shmuel Munkus. Shmuel Munkus was an extremely deep genius. But he also had a great sense of humor. And he used this humor to put many people in their place. When Hasidism was just beginning, many people had their own opinions about it and misinterpretations of it. So he would use this God-given talent to put, let people know exactly where they stood in approaching the truth. He was once traveling to the Alter Rebbe and he meets a guy on the road who looks like he has the wrong agenda. He says, Shalom Aleichem, how are you? What's your name? He says, my name is so-and-so, what do you do? I study Kabbalah. I study mysticism. And I heard that there's a Rebbe in Liazna, where the Alter Rebbe lived, and he's a big mystic, and I want to go ask him my questions in Kabbalah. So Rabbi Shmuel Munkus said, you know, that's very funny. I'm also on my way to Liazna. I happen to be a follower of this Rebbe, and I sometimes feel like I shouldn't ask him all of my questions. I shouldn't bother him with everything. So you're going to him anyways. I also study Kabbalah. I have a question that I want you to ask him. It's a very difficult passage that I came across in a Kabbalah book, and I need to understand what it means. So the guy says, sure, I'll be honored. So he says, this is the passage. Here's how it goes. First, it was scattered. Then, it came together in a circle. Then, a red point was inserted into the white background. Then it got triangular. And then they connected the elements of fire and the elements of water, and it became good. Very cryptic line in my Kabbalah book, and I, I can't figure out what it means. So he says, sure, he memorized it. He said, I'm going to bring it to the Alter Rebbe. He was so impressed with this deep passage. And when he came to the Alter Rebbe, he decided to present this one first. Before his own question, he said, Rabbi, I have a very difficult uh, statement that I need to uh, decipher. So the Alter Rebbe says, sure, what is it? So he repeats, first it was scattered, then it became into a circle, then a red point onto the white background, and then it became triangular and water and fire, and it became good. So the Alter Rebbe laughed, and he said, you just gave me the recipe for making kreplach. <laughs> the flour and then it becomes water and the dough and you make it into a circle you put red meat into the white dough you make it triangular you put it in a pot water and fire and it becomes good so the guy was put in his place he realized what he was dealing with and he left humbled and uh, Rabbi Shmuel Munkis came in next to the Alter Rebbe and the Alter Rebbe said that was your that was your trick right and he said yeah why am I why am I saying this story tonight we're studying letter 15. We're in book four. It's a book of letters. Um, they're not in order of any sort. They're just, each one is individual. And letter 15, actually, it's not even a letter. It's not a letter that the Alter Rebbe addressed to anybody in specific. It's a discourse. And it's a discourse on one of the fundamentals in Kabbalah, which is the Sefirot, the 10 Sefirot. It's actually incredible. Uh, Divine Providence, this, these days are days of Sfirata Omer. Right. We count the Omer, and if you look in the Siddur, every day has a certain Sefira attached to it, a certain divine attribute. There's seven main ones, and then each one has seven. So every day we're doing a different one, we're refining another attribute. So tonight we're actually going to study a little more in depth what are 
each of these attributes. And the Alter Rebbe basically composed this uh, treatise on the Sefirot. And the thing about Kabbalah in general is that everything is written in metaphor. Kabbalah is one big area of Torah that's all allegory. Because just like when you speak in physical terms, when you know that your student is unfamiliar with the material that you're teaching, you employ a metaphor. So you're not going to talk about you know, hydrodynamics or quantum physics if uh, you know that the guy doesn't know what you're talking about. You're going to give him an example of what he knows from day-to-day life and then apply the principle. So we all use metaphor in our lives. And certainly when we're talking about the spiritual realms, the divine realms, that which is completely beyond our uh, comprehension, the only way to study it, to approach it, is to use metaphor. And there's an inherent danger or a risk in using metaphor that it might become to be understood as something physical. You see all these charts people make as if like God is some kind of man with a right hand and a left hand and he has chesed and gevura and these, those are, that's misunderstood Kabbalah. It's a human terminology so that we can then, as the, as the Baal Shem Tov used to famously say, we have to divest everything we study from its material aspect. You start, you, I give you a material metaphor, but then you have to, with your own brain, take it and understand that it's not the metaphor, which is the be-all and the end-all. It's meant to serve as a springboard for you to understand something deeper. So, nevertheless, we're humans, we're physical. That's what we use. We have to study a textbook which uses terminology such as unions and wings and fusions and sefirot and camps and angels, all these descriptions are not meant to be physical. They're a physical way to introduce or to explain a, um, a spiritual concept. So the Alter Rebbe says, by definition, when we're coming to approach the conversation about sefirot, which are roughly translated as God's expressive energies, we have to understand that the fact that we have names for them, even, though, even the fact that we have names, such as chesed, gevura, tiferet, these Hebrew names, kindness, severity, beauty, the names themselves are metaphors. In other words, the sages, in their great wisdom, understood the essence of these energies, and they used these one word or one-liners to give us an inkling into what's behind it. So we study the metaphor, and we hope to gain some kind of a key to enter the room of understanding these, um, these sefirot. And the Alter Rebbe says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a metaphor for the metaphor. In other words, the names of the sefirot themselves are a metaphor. But I'm going to try to translate that metaphor into an even lower metaphor, a human metaphor, that we can each process to illustrate that which is the godly energies. And fascinatingly, if you study the letter, it never goes full circle. He stays with the human metaphor. He never translates into what it actually means in God's context. In other discourses, we have uh, the explanation of that. But here, it's strictly human. So we're basically entering an analysis, a deep analysis of the human psyche. And that's going to be our parallel or our window into, uh, into the world of godliness. So that's where we're headed. However, the Alter Rebbe spends about a third of the letter highly uncharacteristic, 
but about a third of the letter he spends on a disclaimer. And the, the disclaimer is essentially about the relationship between any mashal and nimshal, any parable to its key, any metaphor to what it illustrates. And he uses a metaphor to bring out his disclaimer. <laughs> We're familiar with the biblical story where Avraham Avinu um, fought for the city of Sodom. It was about to be destroyed. It's actually one big city and four kind of sub-cities. And Hashem had informed him that he's going to destroy everybody because they were extremely sinful. And Avraham stands up to essentially pray for, for all these cities. And he starts, maybe there's, you know, 50 righteous people, 40 righteous people, 30, 20, 10. He couldn't find anything. And Hashem says, that's it. Uh, you can't, I'm going to go. At one point in the conversation, Avraham uses the words, the Anochi Afar Va'efer. He says, God, let me please ask of you a request, even though I, I'm not deserving. I'm, I'm dust and ash. I'm dirt and ash. What does that expression mean? So Rashi says that Avraham was saying, I should have been dead twice. If, if my life would have been left to natural recourse, I should have been dead twice. I should have been dirt um, when I was going to be killed in the war that he fought, four kings and five kings. And even earlier in his life, he was supposed to be ash when he famously stood up against idol worship and King Nimrod threw him into the fire. By godly miracles, he wasn't burnt. But naturally, he should have been dust and ash. He's nothing, he's finished. So he has no merit by which to ask a favor from Hashem, yet he asks, and Hashem responded until there was no tzaddikim left. Okay. Mystically, the Alter Rebbe says, what does this verse mean, I'm dust and ash? Avraham wasn't talking about his history. Avram was talking about himself. And he was telling God something, but he was also telling all future generations something very important. And this is a teaching that the Alter Rebbe writes that he heard from his own teacher, the Magid of Mizrich. He says, what do we know about Avraham? Avraham Avinu was a divine manifestation of kindness in this world. He was the epitome of chesed. In fact, there's a Midrash, which is considered to be the oldest work of Kabbalah. It's called Sefer HaBahir, written by one of the sages of the Mishnah. And over there, there's a statement that says that when Avraham was born, the divine mida of chesed, the divine attribute of kindness, came to God and complained. It says, ever since Avraham was born, I'm out of a job. Avraham lives out the most infinite type of kindness that I have no job. That's the extent to which Avram was giving. And we know this. Avram was infinitely giving. He gave to everybody, no matter who, no matter what level you, you were. He was all about spreading godliness and godly awareness to everybody. He debated everybody. He contested everybody. There was nobody who he said, I can't deal with you. He was kind to the highest extreme. Kabbalah even calls him a Merkava. He was like a chariot. A chariot to its rider is completely nullified. Your car has no will of its own. Maybe in 10 years it might, but for right now, your car is a good example. The second your car starts making its own decisions is the second you know that you're not the driver. A proper driver to a chariot 
is able to control it fully. It does just that which the master wants. So Avram Avinu in that way was literally a merkava to godly, godly kindness. So one might be led to think, watching Avraham, you know what? I'm sure that uh, Hashem also has kindness. And certainly it's a greater type of kindness than the one we observe in the physical world, but they're somewhat related. You know, Avram's kindness, kind of like God's kindness. It's relative. It's kind of similar. So Avram Avinu said, in an eternal declaration, he said, you should know that I am dust and ash. The ratio of my kindness, infinite as it may be, to Hashem's kindness is just like the ratio of dust and ash to that which it originally came from. The altar says, imagine you have a piece of wood or you have a tree and you burn the tree down to ash. Biologically speaking, most of the mass of the tree will still be in the ash. You haven't lost much quantitatively speaking. Even mystically speaking, we talk about everything having four elements, fire, water, uh, air, and, and dust. And the Altar says there's an element of all the other three within the tree while it's alive. Once you burn it, the other three go away. But the majority was afar. The majority was, was dirt in the ash. So one could make the case and say, hey, I had a tree before. I have a pile of ash now. It's pretty much the same thing. But everybody knows, no. Once a tree turns to ash, it loses its value completely. It's inconsequential. It has nothing. Certainly not qualitatively, and even quantitatively, it's... it's, it's the mass is gone. The whole mass. Mm-hmm. The thing that binds it is all gone. So Avram Avinu was saying about himself, you should know that I am dust and ash. Whatever chesed I contain is nothing of a nothing compared to that which can be understood about the divine level of kindness. So the Alter Rebbe says, we're about to embark on a metaphor, on a discussion of the Sifirot. You should know that everything we're going to communicate now is like dust and ash relative to the real thing. So we're going to get somewhat of a bit of an understanding. But nothing, nothing substantial and super real should be taken from this when we, excuse me, when we translate it to, to God. That's what it is about metaphors. It's the same thing. Even the most perfect, the best, most matching, exact metaphor um, will serve us only to the degree that we need to understand it, but it will never communicate the full thing. So that being said, and Dalter Rebbe spending considerable time on that, let's actually jump into the Sefirot. So we talked about there are seven main Sefirot, seven emotions. There are three intellectual capacities. <laughs> which we'll talk about in a minute. But the Altar of zooms in, focuses first on the seven emotive attributes. Chesed, kindness, gevura, severity, tiferet is beauty, netzach means victory, hod is glory, yesod is bonding, and malchot is kingship. What, what do these mean? So the Altar of goes into a human analysis. He says, of course, there's a huge panorama of emotions in the human being. I was looking it up today on Google. There was some professor that wrote like 34,000 unique emotions a human being can experience. It's some crazy number. But according to Kabbalah, it's all fundamentally to be found in these seven. In other words, everything we experience can be put somewhere into this, uh, this puzzle of seven, seven midot. And what are they? So Altair goes through step by step. He said chesed, which means kindness, 
is essentially the capacity within the human being that allows us to just give. It's something that takes place within us that uh, says to be giving of ourselves, notwithstanding the credibility of that which we are giving to. So it's a very personal type of um, emotive attribute. It's just you give. Who's standing in front of you? Doesn't matter. A homeless bum, a person in true need, a criminal, makes no difference. If you're, if you're giving knowledge, doesn't matter how smart or how not smart the person is, just give. Whatever it is that you're giving of yourself, it's the capacity to just give. That's why sometimes chesed is called the infinite midah, because it has a capacity of infinity. It doesn't look to differentiate. There's no judgment. Givura, which literally means severity or strength, the Alter Rebbe says could either mean toning down your giving. You don't give as much. Sometimes it means you don't give at all. Because what Givura does is it takes into account everything about the receiver. I don't just give away free money. I need to determine what's your circumstance. Why are you asking for money? Maybe you could have gotten a job. Maybe you could have maneuvered or manipulated your circumstances to make sure that you wouldn't be in this situation. Or if it's knowledge, maybe you're not as smart or as deserving to hear what it is that I have to teach. So Gevura will always tone it down. Gevura may decide not to give at all. By the way, in other discourses, it doesn't say it here in the Tanya, but other places the Alter Rebbe says, maybe Gevura might decide to actually give, and when it does that, it will give more than Chesed. That's why Gevura means strength, because it could be strength to withhold, but it could also mean strength to just give with strength. Because if, imagine if you were walking down the road, and I, I think I gave this metaphor before, you're driving in a car, you see a guy with a sign that says, homeless, please help. If you're a chesed guy, you just open the window, give out a dollar, and that's it. Because you give to everybody. If you're a gvura guy, you pull down the window, you want to find out what happened. If the guy doesn't deserve, you don't give him anything. But if you figure out that he deserves, you won't just pull out a dollar. You're going to pull out a hundred dollar bill. So the gvura within you will actually make you give more, give stronger. But the bottom line of it is that it's a judging. It's a limiting. It's a limiting sefira. And then you have in the middle is tiferet. Just a quick thing. Yeah. That's like childbearing. What is it? <laughs> yes. You got to have both. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the risk. The risk of chesed is that he gives too much to, to everybody. And then... Uh, the Midrash says that Hashem, Hashem saw that if the world would only have been created with chesed, people wouldn't be afraid to sin. Because there's no consequences. I get anyway. Right? That's what's happening. There's too much kindness out there. Those are the two extremes. In the middle, we have tiferet. Tiferet literally means beauty. Because beauty, what is beauty? When do you get beauty? You get beauty from fusion. Singularity or polarity never has beauty. We call that Boring, actually. When somebody is just one-dimensional the whole time, it's like you're going to have a conversation with him. You can count on what's going to be talked about. You just know how it's going to go. You know how he's going to react. There's never unpredictability. There's no beauty. Beauty is when there's lots of dimensions, lots of things coming together. And Tiferet incorporates both Chesed and Gevura. In the context of giving that I was using before, it would say, I'm going to be judging, but even if I determine that by judgment, that he doesn't deserve, my, com- my compassion 
will have me give regardless. That's why Tiferet sometimes is called Rachamim. Because it is, it is compassion, it is pity. It says, maybe you don't deserve, but I'll give you anyways. Maybe I should be Gevura, but I'll still be Chesed. The diversity, the flexibility to be both, gives you Tiferet, gives you beauty. Why is Yaakov associated with Tiferet? Yeah. It's not discussed here, but it has a parallel. You can check our class on chapter 45 in book one. We talked about it then, okay? I remember. Because it comes up there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to do with another element of Tiferet. Element of truth. Uncompromising truth. 45, chapter one. Wanted to make sure. Exactly, right? And you just want us to make sure you understand. <laughs> right. <laughs> Those are the first three. Chesed, Gevura, Tiferet. Now, Chesed, Gevura, Tiferet, even though they're all different, they have one commonality, which is they all take place before anything leaves the giver. They're an attitude type of emotion. Chesed will give with no judgment. Gevura will judge. Tiferet will have the compassion. But nothing has been given yet. It's just where you're going to give from. Are you going to give from a space of chesed? Are you going to give from a space of gevura? Give from a space of tiferet. The next three, the Alter Rebbe says, netzach hodem yesod, they're called lower emotions. Lower because they're related to the actual time of giving. They're related to the moment of what's called hashpa'ah in Hebrew, the flow. When the flow leaves you and comes to that which, or the person that's receiving. And here the Alter Rebbe shifts from a metaphor not of giving money to, to teaching, teaching knowledge. He says, first, there's some forethought that's required. Once you've decided to give, from whichever space you're giving, there's forethought that has to go into the giving, which is, and he uses the teaching metaphor, how do I set it up? If you're giving over a class, you will set it up differently based on your audience. If the person listening to you is a child or an adult, you're going to teach it completely differently. If it's a singular person or a crowd, you're going to set it up differently. He finds, the Alter finds in the Talmud that Netzach and Hod are collectively referred to as a millstone in the Talmud, a grinder. Because a grinder does that. It takes wheat kernels and it makes it bite-sized. It puts it into many, many little, little crumbs. So when you are about to teach something, you have to, in your own mind, really, really work it down to bite-sized pieces of information that can then be processed and digested by the person that's listening. You also have to feed it at a certain pace depending on the mind or the capabilities of the one listening. So Netzach and Hod, the Alter Rebbe says, first, they act as a group. Their joint job is to decide on the setup of the giving. How am I going to give? Then they have distinct jobs. Netzach and Hod have distinct jobs. Netzach means victory, literally. But it's, more, it's better translated as the desire for victory. You ever wanted to win? Maybe it's an argument. Maybe it's something financial. 
But when somebody is in the mindset that they want to win, there is nothing that gets in their way. So long as you're iffy about winning, you're not so convinced, eh, that's when somebody can run you over. The moment you decide, I want to win, and I will win at all costs, that's the moment that nothing will get in your way. So Netzach, in the personal context, says the Alter Rebbe, is the decision or the determination to endure any person or thing that will set you back from reaching your goal. And again, he uses the teaching metaphor. He says, sometimes we get um, discouraged from within. Mm-hmm. We're about to give it, and then we say, you know what? Eh, maybe I'm not worth it. Maybe the effort's not worth it. Maybe I shouldn't do it. Just forget about it. Those are thoughts that Netzach has to push away. We also get discouraged from without. People discourage you. You know, you have a vision. You want to see your company through in some way or another. You want to see your family go on a certain trajectory or another. And everybody around you is fighting it. Nobody is interested in your agenda. They say, forget it. This is no good. We're already living this way for 30 years. It's been working. No need to shake up the wagon. So you have discouragement from within, discouragement from without. Netzach stands up to both. Netzach fights tooth and nail to make sure that the goal is achieved. Now, I'm making it sound very extreme, like you have to always fight a big fight. It's not always a big fight. Sometimes it's a small fight. Sometimes it's quieting a voice inside you that's saying, you know, sowing some doubt. That's also Netzach. So long as you're quieting somebody who's against you, an adversary, to whatever it is you're trying to achieve, you are employing Netzach in your, in your service of God. Now, here, in the Tanya, there's an interesting parenthesis that says, literally, one word, chaser. It's missing. In the original handwritten text of the letter, uh, part of the letter is missing. The Alter doesn't discuss in detail what hod represents in the human. In other discourses, it's discussed as like a, um, a type of submission. A submission that makes you non-movable. It sounds somewhat identical to Netzach, but where Netzach is a proactive fight, Hod is like a hunkering down. This doesn't allow you to be pushed around. So they're both, they're both fighters. But one is a fighter that moves, and one is a fighter that just stays put. I'm, yeah, I'm so loyal. You know, I'm so loyal to my cause that uh, I'm immovable. But... Again, I don't want to put into the Alter Rebbe's mouth words that he doesn't say, and this part is missing in the letter, so we'll just kind of leave it for that. The final emotion that takes place in the moment of giving is yesod. Yesod means bonding. And the way one of my Tanya teachers defined it, and I love it, is it's the capability to draw energy from the relationship itself. There's how you're going to give there's what you're going to give, there's setting up how to give, there's pushing away all the distractions. Then, you got the relationship going. There's something that will transform the quality of the relationship if a feeling of bonding is present. The Alter Rebbe says, and I think it's incredible because today modern science bears this out. A father can teach his son the very same material using the very same exact words. And if the father feels a love and a desire while teaching, it will have a direct effect on the child's understanding of the material. 
So you can have two people saying the exact same words, communicating the exact same idea. One is feeling a love for what he's teaching, and one is not. The, the child or the student will understand more or less proportionate to the emotion that's being put into the relationship. Understand the information, understand Literally understand the information. Which is an incredible thing, because you would think academics are academics, they're completely divorced from the heart. Who cares if, how I feel when I'm teaching? I give you, if I set it up nicely and I gave you good info, you should have the info at the end. No. If the teacher is feeling excited about what they're teaching, that's you so The bond, there's a bond that's created within the relationship, the receiver will benefit even more. Words from the heart penetrate the heart. It's probably exactly, yeah, it's probably connected. Because if, <coughs> yeah, because if the words come from the heart, then they will penetrate in a different way. Relationship and a heart connection to the material and to the person, both? It sounds like from the Tanya, just an interest in the teaching. Okay. It doesn't have to be the material necessarily. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited about being able to teach you yeah. that you will process in your own head things better if you could feel that. The previous Rebbe, when he came to America, he campaigned a lot about that because there was a movement to, um, to bring secular teachers into Jewish schools because they had more teaching method. They had a better... Um, like, uh, what do you call it? Pedagogy? Where, where, yeah, it's the, like uh, the art of teaching. So these secular teachers, they learned in America, they were educated, and they know how to teach Chumash better than your Russian... Uh, you know, peasant that came over from the, the ship, he's not going to teach your kid, you know, proper Chumash. The Friedrich Rebbe, in his talks, again and again, he came down on these teachers. He said, what we have to look for is not professionalism and academics, but a feeling of the love for the Torah. No matter how smart the secular guy is, but he doesn't have a love for what he's teaching, he won't be able to transmit it. We have to bring in teachers that have Ahavas Torah, love for the Torah, because they're the ones that are going to communicate it better than everything else. I remember there was a, a man who lived here in LA and, he, and uh, he used to teach. He came over from Russia in the early 1970s and he used to teach in the local cheder. And I heard from a student that um, he was teaching Bereshit, the first verse of the Torah. And literally it means in the beginning Hashem created the heavens and the earth. But there was a kid in class who was misbehaving. He wasn't sharing. In those days they had like inkwells for their pens. So you had a pen, but you didn't have the ink. You had to share with your friend. He could dip it and then write notes. So this kid wasn't sharing. So the teacher called on this kid. And he said, translate the verse. Bereshis, we're learning. So the kid says, Bereshis, in the beginning. He says, wrong. So what do you mean? Bereshis means in the beginning. He says, no. You know what Bereshis means? Bereshis means give your friend the ink so he can use it on his pen. <laughs> Next word. He says, bara, he created. Wrong. You know what bara means? Bara means that when your friend asks you for ink, you give him some ink. And the same thing you repeated for the whole verse. And he said it made such a huge impact on him. That's Torah coming alive. That's Yisod. Yisod is the bonding that takes place within the moment of relationship. So that is the hierarchy of the Sefirot. There's, of course, Malchut, which is the final one. It's not an emotion. It's more of a power. Malchut is translated as kingship because it basically means the capacity to be a king over yourself. That no matter how you feel on a given day, 
you can have the self-control to do what's right. Just like a physical king, his subjects don't get a choice. They got to submit. So in your, own, in your own life, Malchut is leading yourself like a king. You have the, the power to just dictate. You woke up on the wrong side of the bed, doesn't matter. You still got to do what's right. That's Malchut. So that's the human metaphor for, uh, for the emotions. The Alter Rebbe then backtracks. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because he, he, he also doesn't spend too much time. But he says, the interesting thing about humans, different to animals, is that our emotions are not, are not instinctive. They're intellectual, which means they're guided by the intellect. There's a verse that says, which literally means a person is praised based on his level of intelligence. But on a deeper level, it means your intellect dictates how you feel. The more sophisticated you are, the more sophisticated your emotions will be. That's why we see children, right? They get super flared up about stupid things. And they can be super, turned down super quickly about stupid things. But adults, you offend somebody once, he doesn't forget about it, right? Because you feel in a deeper way. You're more sophisticated, so your emotions are more sophisticated. So in the same way, the, the degree to which a human being has any emotion is dependent upon his seichel, upon his intellectual capacities. And the Alter Rebbe goes through the three basic um, parts of our intellect, which we know as Chabad. Chabad stands for Chachma Bina Dat, which literally means wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, but it's three, it's three steps in the intellectual process. Step one is Chachma. Chachma means wisdom, but if I can translate it a little subtler, it would mean the humility to open yourself up to new ideas. Many times you can get transfixed on figuring something out, and that's when you get writer's block. But if you can just make your brain into a vacuum and open it up to receive a new consciousness, that's when the new flashes of insight come in. So Chachma is very creative, but it doesn't have a lot of detail. It's a flash of insight. Bina is not creative, but it's super analytical. It will dissect whatever you feed it. It will identify all the flaws. It will find all the good points. It will fine-tune everything. You give it something, and it'll take it apart. And then put it back together in a beautiful way. And that, the final stage of, of intellect, is actually something which doesn't contribute anything at all to the comprehension. That, one of my teachers translated it, is personalization. It's the moment when what you're thinking about matters. Hashem made it this way. Our brains have the capacity to be detached from that which we're studying. You can learn something, acknowledge the truth of it, but it makes no difference in your life. That is when you jump that bridge. And now, what you're learning matters. Yeah. Do you start thinking about like gigabytes, right? And do, do those three things take up the same amount of space, space? That, that we have the capacity for? It seemed like the one that's processing the information is the most. Burn more calories, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, it doesn't say, not, not I know of, quantitatively how much each thing takes up. But there are three, there are three parts. 
the three basic parts of every intellect. And that is what dictates the emotions. So we have the whole panorama of the emotions, and they're dictated by the sechel, by the and are, are we still the in the metaphor? Intellect. Yes, this is all the human metaphor. metaphor. So this isn't even really real, as we're talking about the human experience. This is a more no, this thing, but it's broken down so that we... Exactly. This is the human experience of the Sefirot. This is your version. This is our version of the ten attributes of Hashem. The way they're translated into God, he doesn't even get to in the letter. He does, however, in the end, very quickly, translate it into godly terms. He says, everything I've been giving you now is very physical. Giving money, giving teaching. Uh, it's all human. <clears throat> We're Jews. We have a godly soul. That part of ourself also has those ten attributes, but it does it all in godly ways. So like, think about if you only had godly interests. How would these things express themselves? So he, he just, very quickly, he goes through all the ten, how they, how they would be if we could be fully godly. He says, your chokhmah, would surrender itself and open itself up to godly ideas. Your bina would want to take apart and understand how God is in every part of the universe. Your dat will want to make that matter to you and allow you to feel godliness. Your chesed will express itself in a deep love and attachment to God. Your gevura, interestingly, will express itself in a strong desire for fairness in the world. He says, you will want that those that do injustice should be punished because it's a godly thing. Hashem runs the world. Hashem is the essence of the world. Those who violate his will should be taken to account. And your gevura will also have a personal effect, which is you will want to defeat all your weakness, strength to use to defeat your own yetzer hara, as well as to put up fences where necessary. Even though something is permitted, doesn't mean you have to do it. Maybe you can take on a new stringency to keep away from sin. Beauty, tiferet, will that express itself godly, in godliness? You're going to want to simply beautify God and anything connected to Him. You won't just buy any lulav. You're going to look for the best lulav. You won't just buy any matzah. You look for the best. When you have a talis, you're going to make sure it's the nicest material. When you write a Torah, the best ink. Beauty, literally. And also beautifying God with your words. You're going to find ways to influence people about the greatness of Hashem. You'll just talk about how much benefit He brings to your life, to others. And Netzach, again, anybody that stands up to you about Hashem, you're going to be fighting with determination. He says both globally and personally. Anybody who fights your knowledge of God and anybody who fights godliness in the world. Because you're on a mission. You want to bring Hashem to the world. So whoever's fighting that, you're going to be netzaching them. And hod, hod he translates here in godliness, he does translate it as thanks and submission. First, just being grateful. Not taking things for granted. Thanking Hashem. Hod shares the same word as hoda'a, which is thanks. But also hod means submitting. Acknowledging even when you don't understand you know that Hashem is working and running everything and is at the core of everything, even if you can't fathom it. And Yisod, like in the physical, is drawing a strength from the relationship itself. Just being in tune with Hashem gives you incredible joy. Malchut, again, has the same translation as the kingship. Kingship, accepting God's kingship, literally. It's interesting, the Rebbe once said, why is that the end of, you, of the human? 
Now, talking about this whole hierarchy, and the end of it is Malchut. Why is the end Malchut? Because that is the bottom line. The bottom line is, if you can't get it done, the whole intellectual and emotional discussion doesn't count. Performance is paramount when it comes to Judaism. Judaism is a deed-oriented religion because that's what matters, bringing Hashem into the physical world. So here we have this, uh, this wholesome discussion on the ten sefirot. And that's where the letter closes because the Alter doesn't go the next step about applying it to Hashem. We can do some studying and, and apply it ourselves and understand that when Hashem expresses Himself in a way of chesed or in a way of gvura, it will, it will, um, it will be in that way. But we have, we have what we have. And I think it's, again, incredible divine providence that these days are the days of Sfirat HaOmer, of refining our attributes. Every day, is a, every week is a different Sefirah. Last week we worked on Chesed. This week we're working on Gevura. And each one has to have them all. And I think sometimes it gets pretty you know, daunting. You look at it, the whole thing, I gotta be a perfect human, refine my whole character. But I think if we take it one day at a time, or one element at a time, and work on one area, become the master of ourselves in one place, and that's the beginning to, uh, to a proper journey to receiving the Torah. L'chaim! L'chaim!